0: This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org.
1: which is looking at stateless diasporas and forced migration, and this is the Refugee Study Centre Public Seminar Series, which is organised this term in association with the Oxford Diaspora Programme. And it's a real pleasure to introduce Dr. Laura van Vaas, who has come from Tilburg Tilburg Law School um, in the Netherlands, and Laura is a senior researcher and also the manager of the statelessness programme at um, Tilburg Law um, School. She is um, an expert on international law and um, statelessness in particular, and has lectured and um, published widely on issues surrounding statelessness, in addition to conducting research um, in and about the Middle East and North Africa and Southeast Asia in particular. Um, Laura has um, collaborated with the Refugee Study Centre on a number of different occasions, including on the RSC short course on statelessness, which was run last year. year year before last, and also um, contributed through developing the state instance module which we used in the RSC um, summer school enforced migration last year. So without further ado, I'll pass over to, to Laura, and we have about um, 50 to 60 minutes for, for Laura's presentation, then we'll move on to questions and answers, and then we'll move downstairs for drinks and further conversation. So thank you very much
0: Thank you very much. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Elena's been kind enough to already say a few words about me. Before I dive into the international law stuff, which is the really juicy part, I just want to say a few words about what the statelessness program is. Um, If you haven't heard of it, uh, don't feel bad. It's fine. It's only been in existence for about six months now, and we actually have our official launch event in two weeks' time. Um, It's a new initiative. It's the first university center that specifically focuses on statelessness and takes that as the central pillar for looking at all the issues that surround statelessness. And we hope that it will grow over time to include PhD researchers, all sorts of forms of education, training, etc. Uh, what we're already currently doing is supporting training efforts of other organisations such as UNHCR. Uh, we're doing our own teaching. We have an undergraduate course on statelessness that we're piloting next semester. We're teaching a summer course dedicated to statelessness next July. We're doing research on statelessness in the Middle East and North Africa. We have uh, our own seminars planned. We plan a lot of outreach activities in the Netherlands to try to get capacity built within the country to address statelessness. Uh, So we're developing a lot of ideas, literally at the moment, uh, and I'd be happy to talk to any of you who are interested afterwards about the kind of activities that we have and perhaps some ideas that you would like to put to us as we develop our program. So, That being said, um, I have been asked to come and speak to you in a seminar series on stateless diasporas. Uh, I will try and get back to that specific issue in a roundabout way towards the end of my presentation, but my focus is really international law. That is how I have come to statelessness. I was trained in international human rights law, and that's the context in which I discovered the problem of statelessness. So that's my point of departure. Now there are lots of different ways to talk about the international law surrounding statelessness. I usually set about going, uh, talking about this by theme, talking about the prevention of statelessness, talking about the protection of stateless persons, but I wanted to do it a little bit differently today and look more at a chronological development of international law, since the title is International Law and in the 21st Century. So to begin with, I want to take you back to the 20th century and to 90 years ago when a letter was sent by the International Committee of the Red Cross to the League of Nations in which it was stated, it is impossible that in the 20th century there could be 800,000 men in Europe unprotected by any organisation recognised by international law. This is one of the really early references to statelessness, where statelessness is deplored as an international (coughs) phenomenon. And there is a massive urging of states to do something about this issue. This is 90 years ago. Bringing us back to this year, uh, and a new form of memorandum, which is the weblog, certainly formal letter typing has been taken over by the internet in many ways, so this is the modern day equivalent, and it's an online blog post by the Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, the title of which is, several hundred thousand stateless people in Europe, they need extra protection, and it goes on to talk about who these people are and why they need help in very much the same level of urgency, states are called into action. So this is just to set the scene that somewhere between 90 years ago and today, this phenomenon has perhaps been forgotten and is now being rediscovered. And I'd like to take you a little bit through that process as we look at the development of international law. So the major question is, if this is a statement from 90 years ago and a statement from two months ago and they seem virtually identical, has anything changed? Have we really got anywhere? Now to give you one more quote before we get into this. The High Commissioner for Refugees stated as part of a massive statelessness media campaign which you may have seen some of the products of this August. It is shameful that millions of people are living without a nationality. That's the way he puts it. It is shameful. But in fact, today, statelessness is now receiving a lot of international attention. From the international community, from the press increasingly, from people who are working within academia, from a whole range of actors. And it is shameful that millions of people are stateless. But what I want to talk about today is the fact that it's not just shameful, but their plight, The fact that they are stateless and the treatment that they often receive by states is also increasingly in violation of international legal standards. And you really see that through the development of international law. So, what do I mean when I talk about international law relating to statelessness? Well, again, I'm going to take you back in time. In the early 20th century, just after the International Committee of the Red Cross had expressed its grievances at the existence of these stateless people in Europe, there was a ruling by the Permanent Court of International Justice. It was a ruling in a case where it was asked to consider the legitimacy of certain nationality laws. And the court first had to decide whether it even had jurisdiction to rule on the nationality laws of a state. Is that an area in which international law has any influence? And the court said, quite sensibly, well that all depends on the current state of international law. And it depends on whether there are customary norms, whether there are treaty obligations that bind states in the field of nationality. It's a pretty sensible statement. And it went on to say, Given international law as it currently stands, this is back in 1923, the states have the freedom to regulate nationality in accordance with their own sovereign interests. At the time, it was not an area in which international law was starting to infringe on state sovereignty. But immediately after that, you see a number of developments whereby this is starting to change. In 1930, there was a convention settled within the context of the League of Nations. It's got a beautiful lengthy title, as many of these international instruments do. It's called the Hague Convention on Certain Questions Relating to the Conflict of Nationality Laws. That's exactly what it is. It tries to prevent conflicts of nationality laws. And it tries to prevent both positive and negative conflicts. Now, a positive conflict That's, for example, where your parents are nationals of one state and you're born on the territory of another state and both of those states would like to give you nationality at birth. It's fantastic, you get dual nationality. Many people these days are benefiting from these kinds of positive conflicts of laws. Now, a negative conflict of laws is precisely the opposite. You neither get nationality from your parents nor from the state in which you're born. So you get no nationality, and you're born stateless. Now in 1930, the international community didn't like either of these phenomena. They would prefer you to just have one nationality, because your nationality is your bond of membership with the state. So it's also a bond of allegiance, a bond of loyalty. And states were very skeptical, either about people having more than one bond of allegiance, being loyal to more than one state, and about people who had no allegiance, didn't have to be loyal to any state. Both of these situations were considered to be worrying to states who were very much trying to control populations and figure out where to place them within the overall international legal regime. So this convention was drafted in order to solve these positive and negative conflicts of laws, and it was drafted very much from the perspective of states. Now, if we move to the post-World War II period, we see a real change in the dynamics of the way that statelessness is addressed under international law. In 1948, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights was adopted, and this includes, in Article 15, the fantastic words, everyone has the right to a nationality. This means that when states were sitting down trying to figure out what list of fundamental rights and freedoms to include in an international instrument, they decided that having a nationality was one of those fundamental rights that needed to be guaranteed for you under international law. Here we start to see a shift from discussions of nationality as an issue of state sovereignty, as an issue of conflicts of laws, to a human rights based approach. And we see a shift in the language used and a shift even in the policy aims. Now we have to deal with negative conflicts of laws because you have the right to a nationality. If you can't enjoy the right to a nationality, if you are stateless, that will impact on the enjoyment of lots of other rights. And so that's why we need to guarantee the right to a nationality. So, this is where you see the first shift in the way that statelessness is really dealt with under international law and the development of the system that we know today. Now, what happened next is that the right to a nationality had to then be translated into some kind of proper working functional regime for dealing with statelessness. Now, it's very nice that everyone has the right to a nationality. But when it comes to it, which nationality do you have a right to? That's one of the questions that states were faced with. But more pressingly than that, they were faced with the question, what are we going to do with these hundreds of thousands of people who already have no nationality? They were literally screaming for attention in the post-World War II period. And so that's the first thing that was tackled. States got together and they figured out, okay, so we need some kind of regime to protect people who don't enjoy national protection. We need some kind of international fallback. And this is where they decided to elaborate two conventions, one of which is very well-known, and one of it which is not very well-known at all. Now, the very well-known one is the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. It is the cornerstone of refugee protection worldwide, has over 140-something state parties, and has led to a whole development of an entire field of law. The second instrument is the 1954 convention relating to the status of stateless persons. It's an instrument that many law students have never heard of, many will never be taught about. People who even study refugee law don't necessarily ever take the chance to open the convention and see what it says and this is remarkable because they're sister instruments. Once upon a time they started out life as one convention with a protocol so we had a refugee convention with a protocol dealing with stateless people but due to time constraints and the need to adopt an instrument quickly the two instruments were separated and that's where we see also the separation of refugee issues and statelessness issues. So the 1954 convention deals with the protection of people who have become stateless. It has its own definition. (coughs) Instead of Article 1 opening with the definition of a refugee, it opens with an Article 1 defining who is a stateless person. And that's something that I'll come back to talking about more later. It then takes pretty much an identical approach. It elaborates a whole set of rights that you enjoy if you hold the legal status of a stateless person. And that was seen as the way to deal with these free radicals that have no allegiance, no opportunity to exercise the right a nationality. Having settled that issue, the international community turned to the other objective, making sure that there are no new cases of statelessness, that we no longer in the future have to deal with this issue. And so they went to figure out, again, how to deal with conflicts of law situations. The Hague Convention hadn't really done its job. It needed a better, more dedicated regime to deal with statelessness issues. And so, the 1961 Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness was adopted. This is a completely different instrument to the 1954 Statelessness Convention. It doesn't deal with protection issues. It doesn't identify who is a stateless person. It simply elaborates a whole series of safeguards that states should transfer into their nationality law to ensure that no one is left without a nationality. So, very simply, this convention says, uh, Germany, you can give nationality to whoever you want when they're born on your territory or when they're born to your nationals, it's fine, you can choose, but If someone is born on your territory and they don't acquire any nationality, you have the obligation to grant nationality, because otherwise you will leave them stateless. So it deals with a very, very small, specific part of nationality law, which has now become an area for international law to deal with. So we still have nationality law as a body of domestic law that remains relatively untouched by international law. It's still up to you to grant nationality to people born on the territory, or to people who've resided there for 20 years, or uh, to everyone who has invested $100,000 in a company. That's fine, you can set the rules, but in this very small area, namely the avoidance of statelessness, there are international rules that start to be imposed in order to deal with this specific issue. Now what happens after 1961 and up to today is very interesting because on the one hand the statelessness conventions that states have put a lot of energy and time and sweat and blood and tears into drafting are forgotten. Very few states sign up to them. Very little is written about them. There is one book written in 1979 that deals with the instruments in detail. That is pretty much it in terms of development of this doctrine, of this dedicated statelessness system. But at the same time, statelessness isn't forgotten. The right to a nationality is included in every single major universal human rights instrument that you can name and still in the universal instruments that are being drafted all the time, even the most recent ones on persons with disabilities, declaration on indigenous peoples, every one of those instruments has a clause elaborating the right to a nationality. So statelessness isn't forgotten, it's just shifted almost to the human rights framework and away from this dedicated regime. So we see that the universal human rights conventions elaborate the right to a nationality, They are quite specific in some cases. In the context of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, it is elaborated that you have the right to enjoy nationality without discrimination on the grounds of race or ethnicity or social origin. In the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, it says very specifically, men and women are to enjoy equal nationality rights. Women should have an equal entitlement to pass nationality to their children as men. If people get married, men and women should have equal nationality rights in that marriage. So it deals with some very specific standards that really should be transposed into national law. Article 7 on the Convention of the Rights of the Child. Every child has the right to acquire a nationality. This, combined with other provisions in the Convention that talk about statelessness, that talk about the best interests of the child, place an onus on states to do something in their nationality law to make sure that children aren't stateless and that they aren't left stateless. At the same time, there's also a massive development in regional human rights standards and other regional standards. So in the Americas, in Africa, for the Arab world, we see human rights instruments being elaborated and again, the right to a nationality is in there with the catalog of human rights. In Europe, A huge dedicated instrument is adopted even, the European Convention on Nationality. This deals with all sorts of rules for states to adopt in their nationality legislation, on dual citizenship, on statelessness, on general principles in terms of nationality regulation, fair procedures, the right to be heard, all of these things are included in a specific dedicated European Convention. So still the issue is on the international agenda It's just shifted to other parts of international law. At the same time, there are also other legal developments. And a very good example is the development of standards for the specific context of state succession. This really was put on the international agenda by the break-up of the former Soviet Union and the former Yugoslavia, which meant that there were large new groups of stateless people on the margins and inside Europe. That meant that states were reminded of the need to deal with this issue and so they figured out well we don't just need regular standards for day-to-day life we also need some kind of system for dealing with nationality in the context of state succession. If a state becomes independent how must it regulate access to its new nationality to ensure that no one becomes stateless. So we have a Council of Europe convention that deals specifically with the avoidance of statelessness in the context of state succession and a series of draft articles elaborated by the International Law Commission to deal with exactly the same issue. So still statelessness keeps reoccurring. That means that today the international framework dealing with statelessness is actually rather elaborate more than you might think at first glance. There is a clear onus on states to avoid statelessness. This is because, for one, the right to a nationality is so firmly embedded in every major human rights instrument. And secondly, because the 1961 statelessness convention is receiving renewed attention. The UN General Assembly, the Human Rights Council, UNHCR, which is the UN body with a mandate on statelessness, All of these bodies and a whole range of states have been calling for accession to this instrument, implementation of its standards. So this shows again that there is a real interest to use international law to avoid statelessness. At the same time, stateless no longer means rightless. There are some very famous, very poetic writings from the 1940s and 50s talking all about how once you lose your nationality, you are at the mercy of the charity of states. You have no legal entitlements anymore. Your nationality is your right to have rights. Now, if you're a human rights lawyer, that is something that you will argue tooth and nail because it's human dignity that is the basis for your enjoyment of rights. You don't have the right to access education as a child because you are a British citizen or a Russian citizen or whatever. You have that because you are a child and every child enjoys the right to an education. So the whole thinking about the connection between nationality and rights has also started to change. And the stateless are no longer rightless in this kind of pure sense of being left to fend for themselves. Having said that, there are a lot of practical issues that have to be dealt with, and so this is why, again, all of the different UN bodies and various states are calling for increased accessions to the 1954 Statelessness Convention, which still has a number of very relevant special measures for dealing with the protection of stateless people. So today, what we see when we look at the international framework is two complementary areas of law. We have the dedicated statelessness conventions which set down quite detailed standards to deal specifically with the vulnerability of statelessness and the creation of statelessness. And then we have the wider body of human rights law that really backs that up and that shows us that states have already made commitments to these issues. They may just be in need of further guidance in how to go about achieving these objectives. Now this is a really nice picture that I've been painting, it's fantastic, we have all this international law, that's great, we can all take it easy. Um, That's not the case, and I'll take us back to what the High Commissioner said in August as part of this press campaign. He said it is shameful that millions of people are living without a nationality, and that's true. It's estimated that 12 million people around the world are stateless today. That's not including the number of people who are stateless and refugees, because UNHCR doesn't double count. Once you're a refugee, you go into refugee statistics, and the fact that you're stateless is an issue to be dealt with later. So these are just the stateless people who are not refugees. Now, if we tally in the number of stateless people who are also refugees, you can see we're getting to a really significant problem. There are also new cases of statelessness being created every day. As we speak, there is probably a child being born who is stateless, because there is an inadequate implementation of safeguards by states to prevent that from happening. We see in reality, even though the stateless are not technically rightless under international law, that stateless people face major difficulties in accessing a broad range of rights that most people take for granted. And it's a surprisingly broad range of rights. Stateless people find it very hard to access schooling, particularly beyond a certain level, where you perhaps have to present a citizenship document in order to take an exam. They have difficulty accessing work because they simply don't have the papers to prove their identity. They aren't able to open a bank account, so where would any money be transferred? They can't register a business, so it's very difficult for them to provide for their families. It's almost impossible to marry legally because that requires some kind of documentation of who you are and in some countries it requires documentation issued by that country's authority which you simply don't have access to as a stateless person. It's impossible to travel. The reality is that you need a passport to travel these days And so for a stateless person, there is no country that is obliged to issue a passport because it's usually issued by your country of nationality. So unless we have some kind of replacement travel document, one of the things that the 1954 convention tries to sort out, stateless people are not in a position to travel. And the list is actually much longer. If you can think of any simple uh, transaction or issue that you have to approach the state for... For stateless people, it can be impossible. Even things like reporting a crime, because you may be asked to provide an identity document to prove your own identity before the crime is recorded with the police. So it's a really dire situation in many countries. Statelessness also continues to contribute to human insecurity more broadly, to communal tension and to international instability. And this is really where we come to the heart of why states are so interested in this issue. To prevent statelessness is to ensure that people enjoy their rights where they're from and where they should enjoy their rights. As soon as that's not possible, and they have all of these difficulties to deal with, they may be forced to flee across an international border. They may become refugees. They may become irregular migrants. And then they're suddenly another state's problem, and it becomes very difficult to deal with them. That's one of the motivations that countries have now had to take the statelessness issue more seriously again. There has also been evidence tracing a link between statelessness and issues of identity, belonging, nationality, and conflict. Because if you have a large group within your population who you claim doesn't belong, they're outsiders, they're not like us, they're different. No, maybe they have an allegiance to a neighbouring state. You create communal tensions and that can spark conflict. And what's interesting is if we look back to the quote that I read out at the beginning, we actually see that many of the situations that we look at in the world today are not the same ones as at the beginning of the 20th century, but are very similar. It's still cases where a state succession has not been dealt with correctly correctly. Just from the former uh, Soviet Union, it's estimated there are around 600,000 people who are still stateless 20 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, 600,000. It's very similar to the situation in the early 20th century. There are also large groups who are being deliberately denied access to nationality. Think of the Rohingya, think of the stateless Kurds in Syria, the Bedouin in Kuwait, the people of Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic, hill tribes in Thailand, the list is very long. And the commonality is that all of these groups are being deliberately excluded, deliberately told, you do not belong, you do not deserve nationality. And again, that's very similar to the types of situation that we saw in the early 20th century. So to bring us round a little bit towards the stateless diaspora question uh, with a slightly awkward link, what I want to do is just talk about two specific challenges that I think it's important to be aware of when you start to look at the international law on statelessness and what's going on on the ground. The first is the challenge of definition. Now a stateless person is someone who is not considered as a national by any state under the operation of its law. This is the one and only international legal definition of who a stateless person is. This definition is beyond dispute. It's included in Article 1 of the 1954 convention relating to the status of stateless persons, and it's also been recognized by the International Law Commission, among others, as being part of customary international law. So this is our legal definition of who is a stateless person. The problem with this is that this definition has stood still for half a century. As I said, the conventions were adopted and then largely forgotten. So whereas within refugee law, we see a massive development of literature, of jurisprudence, of guiding principles, handbooks, all sorts of interpretative guidance, all sorts of guidance on how do you deal with figuring out if the person you're interviewing is a refugee in practice. For statelessness, we have none of that. There is a commentary about the 1954 convention that was written in 1954 and it mentions that it's really difficult to work out who's stateless. Yeah, because you have to prove something that someone doesn't have and yeah, it's really hard. That's pretty much all it says, that's it, that's the guidance you send out to states with this convention. Good luck, it's really hard. it's hopeless. And because the conventions were forgotten, that's pretty much all that we have, or at least it's pretty much all that we had until about three years ago, when UNHCR started to push for the development of guidance, and when academics took a renewed interest in this issue. And now, if you go online to UNHCR's website, and you look at their statelessness resources, there is a fantastic document that I recommend reading, which tells you all about the problems with this definition, and that's um, some conclusions that were adopted by an expert meeting that was convened precisely to figure out what does this definition mean. When we say a national, what do we mean by a national? When are you a national or not a national? Is British Overseas citizenship a nationality or is it not a nationality? Do we mean national in the sense of international law or domestic law? It raises all sorts of questions. These are the types of questions debated in the meeting. Uh, by any state. What's a state? Is Palestine a state? Is Kosovo a state? Is Kosovo a state if it's recognised by one state, but then you're a stateless person there, but you're not a stateless person in another state because that state doesn't recognise I can't explain it. Um, but states that are only recognised by some states and not others, are they a state for the purposes of this definition? What does under the operation of its law mean? Does that mean that we have to just look at the text of the law? Does it mean that we also have to look at the way that the law is interpreted by the courts or applied by the administrative authorities? These are all the kinds of questions that have not been debated until very, very recently. So that means that the guidance, the jurisprudence, the expertise is really at the very beginning stages now and that's made it very difficult for states to figure out what to do with statelessness, but for even for anyone to understand what the issue is. It's one of the reasons why it has such a low profile. Now because of all of these questions that I've just raised, and the ambiguity that has surrounded the definition, what we've also seen is that statelessness as a concept has taken on something of a life of its own. Um, Now, this is an issue that we could debate for a long time. The pros and the cons of the different approaches to using the term statelessness. It's certainly true that it is quite evocative. It sounds pretty serious. It summarizes quite neatly the type of problems that many different people face. The difficulty is that on the one hand we have this legal definition. If you meet this legal definition, You are a stateless person under international law, and you have certain entitlements under international law. Now, if we use this definition to also describe other situations, that may be quite a practical approach, because their problems are similar, but there is no international law that backs that up. So even once they're described as stateless, that doesn't necessarily say anything about their position under international law. And the concept of de facto statelessness is a really good example of this. If you were to look at reports, studies, government statements, even one or two laws that have been developed in the last 10 to 15 years, you'll see that Almost anybody has been described at some stage as de facto stateless. Uh, De facto stateless is a person who does not have the nationality of the country that they're living in, but has their parents' nationality, because that nationality isn't very effective because they're living somewhere else. So de facto, they're stateless, because their nationality is not very convenient to them. Uh, People who are trapped in Guantanamo Bay, they're de facto stateless, because how do they have any rights and there's no state sticking up for them? people who have a nationality on paper but don't seem to be able to access a school, or people who have a nationality in theory but have never been given documents. All of these different situations and many, many more have been described as de facto statelessness because it's a useful concept in the sense that we understand what is meant. We understand the sentiment of being stateless. But it also raises the question of what does this mean for the international legal regime, and the clarity of that regime, and the opportunity to hold states accountable for their international commitments. Because as soon as we start to include pretty much everybody who lives in a state where not all people can vote, under the term statelessness, How do we start to deal with that under international law? Whose responsibility is it? And so it detracts, perhaps, from the way in which international law deals with the real situations of statelessness, like the Rohingya, like the stateless Kurds in Syria, like the Bidun in Kuwait. And reading uh, some of the materials in preparation for today about the project on stateless diasporas, that's also made me think of this question. And again, I'm coming at this issue as a lawyer. So when I use a concept, I want to be clear on what that means in the legal sense. And that's certainly separated from what it means in an anthropological sense, or a socioeconomic sense. Nationality is another good example of that. A nationality, in terms of the law, is something different from a nationality in terms of belonging to a nation, sharing cultural heritage. Each has its functions in different settings but I think it's very important to consider when you use a term how you're using it and what value you give to that term. Are you trying to use it as a legal concept or are you using it as a broader notion to describe a situation? And the same is true in describing people who are members of a nation which does not have its own state as stateless. That's true, they don't have their own state, but under international law, they may well hold the nationality of a state. They may well be British or German or French, and I think that's going to be one of the very interesting things to come out of the Stateless Diasporas project, to see how people self-identify. Do they consider themselves stateless? Is that a term that they would like used about them? Or is it more important to continue to assert that they are British nationals, but belonging to a nation that has ties elsewhere? And it's a really interesting part of the research. Then a few words on migration. Uh, This is obviously a center for studying forced migration and refugee issues, and there is a really close link between migration and statelessness. This is not just because the two instruments that I was talking talking about earlier developed together, it's also because statelessness today is both a cause of migration and a product of migration. Uh, To give you an example of each, migration is a cause of statelessness where people have left their country of nationality and then, for example, lose that nationality under the law. An obvious example of this is Indonesia where until 2006 under the law if you migrated from Indonesia and lived abroad for longer than five years and you didn't at some point come forward and register with your consulate you would automatically lose your nationality whether that left you stateless or not. And as you all know I'm sure Indonesia has a massive emigrant population, there are Indonesian migrant workers scattered all around the region and all around the globe. and Many of these people are not necessarily going to be well educated enough, well informed enough, wealthy enough or in the position to come forward to that consulate every year to register that they would like to keep their Indonesian nationality. So many of these people were rendered stateless simply by the way the law operated. And in 2006, the law was amended to deal with this. So now you can't lose your Indonesian nationality because of migration if that means that you're going to be stateless. And also, the law included a special provision that allowed anyone who had previously lost their nationality because of migration to reacquire Indonesian nationality. And there are reports from civil society within Indonesia that over 100,000 people just in Malaysia reacquired their Indonesian nationality since 2006. So just the fact of migration is enough sometimes to cause statelessness. Another simple example, if you migrate to a country that is not your country of nationality, there is a chance that you might meet and fall in love with a local. Now when you get married, that produces a mixed nationality marriage and a much higher likelihood of a conflict of nationality laws. It could be positive and work in your favour and you get nationality of both parents, but it could also be negative and you neither get your mother nor your father's nationality and you end up stateless. So the simple fact of migration jumbles people up and puts them in places where states don't expect to find them and makes it much harder for them to access nationality. Then the reverse situation. Statelessness causes migration. As I already mentioned, if you're stateless, you've got a lot of problems that you have to deal with in day-to-day life. It may also be that statelessness is part of a deliberate program of marginalization, exclusion, even persecution by the authorities. And all of these factors will contribute to pushing you to find a solution for your problem somewhere else. The Rohingya are an exemplary example a stateless and refugee population that is incredibly well known and their statelessness is one of the elements that has forced them to flee and seek refuge in other countries. So their statelessness is part of the component that has led to their migration. So in both these scenarios, whether statelessness happens because you have migrated, or migration happens because you are stateless, this is creating stateless diasporas, in a sense. People who become dispersed over the region or over the world, who have no nationality. and they create a situation that has to be dealt with in one way or another by the host country in which they find themselves. I mentioned the Rohingyas as an example. Uh, Bhutanese, who ended up as refugees in Nepal, were also stripped of their nationality. were stuck in Nepal for a very long time. Many of them are still there in refugee camps. Lots of them are now being resettled to various countries. So the diaspora is now being thrown out from a concentrated refugee camp to all corners of the world. And these are stateless groups who won't necessarily automatically get citizenship the day that they're resettled. The stateless Kurds in Syria wind up as asylum seekers in a whole range of places. The same for the Bidun from Kuwait. And I could list a whole lot of other examples where this is the case. So the message really is that the situation of these stateless diasporas, even in the 21st century, in reality is really precarious. Many, as I said, are not only stateless, they are also refugees. And their denial of nationality is one of the elements of persecution. They are at real risk of expulsion, of detention, and of what has been described as the ping-pong effect where they end up in one country where they're not a national because they're stateless, they have no nationality, they're always a foreigner wherever they're sent. That country tries to expel them somewhere else where they think they have ties because of language or because of prior residence. That country says, yeah, but they're not nationals here either. What are you doing? Sends them back. That country says, yeah, but hold on a minute. I'm pretty sure you're responsible and sends them back. And it it goes on and on. And there are cases, even that I know of in the Netherlands, and I haven't looked into the issue in my own country yet, in any detail whatsoever. But there are cases there, where the Dutch authorities have expelled someone to Ukraine, and Ukraine has expelled them back to Holland. And Holland has expelled them back to Ukraine, and no one takes responsibility. And in the meantime, there is also a pattern of detention. Detention, release from detention because there is no prospect of being sent anywhere. So, okay, well, we'd better let you go because we can't really hold you for longer than a few months. But no solution. And so then you have to try to figure out a way to make a life for yourself. You perhaps commit a subsistence crime in order to pay for food or to pay for lodging you're picked up by the police, the police find out that you're stateless, you don't have the right to be in the country, so you're detained pending your expulsion, but then you can't be expelled, so six months later you're released, but there's no solution, and these cycles also continue. So again, in the Netherlands we've seen cases where people go from being homeless to detained, to homeless, to detained, to homeless, to detained, and it carries on for years on end. All of this means that for the stateless diasporas, there is little prospect of a durable solution, there is little prospect of acquisition of nationality. In order to have any hope of acquiring nationality in your host country, you really have to first have some kind of resident status. You have to first have some kind of recognition that you're legally allowed to be there. There are no countries in the world that I'm aware of where you can naturalize without first having had some kind of residence permit. So unless that's dealt with, these stateless people will stay stateless because they will never even be able to submit an application for naturalization. They can't even begin to tally up the years that you need to accrue in order to apply for naturalization because that counter starts once you have lawful residence. So in many cases that means that there is no real opportunity for them to acquire a nationality. And because they're outside of the country where they perhaps came from or the country whose nationality they used to possess, they're also off the radar there. So any solution that may be adopted in that country might also not reach to them. There's an example of this in Sri Lanka where there were hundreds of thousands of stateless people following the independence of Sri Lanka. And there were mainly people who were brought across from India by the British colonizers at the time that it was all part of the same country. And these people remained stateless for many decades, living in Sri Lanka, until in 2003 a law was adopted that recognized all of them as citizens. At least it recognized all of them who were now currently in Sri Lanka as citizens because you had to come forward and get the paperwork. So those who had returned somehow to India, but were stateless because of the same situation, fell outside of the provisions of this new law, And now the country is adopting more and more additional regulations to try to deal with that population because there's a big advocacy group that is ensuring that their rights are lobbied for. But often in the initial solution that we sometimes see to stateless situations, it deals with people who are in-country, not necessarily people who have been forced to leave in the decades or generations in between. Those who are not refugees may be even more vulnerable than those who are able to acquire refugee status. The refugee regime is much more developed than the stateless person protection regime, even though they have shared origins. So most countries, certainly if we take Western Europe as an example, you can go and apply for asylum and there is a procedure and you'll be recognised as a refugee at some point if you meet the definition, and based on that you'll be given some kind of legal status and permission to stay. Now, those same countries, many of them have signed up to the 1954 Statelessness Convention, but they don't have an equivalent procedure where you can say, hold on a minute, I'm stateless, I need protection, I fall under this document, please recognise me and give me a residence permit. Those procedures exist in only a handful of countries in the world. And so if you're not also lucky enough to be persecuted, you can be stateless and left without any real prospect of a solution because you have taken this step of moving outside your country. To end on a slightly more positive note, within international law we see solutions being developed for the kind of situations that I've described. The 1954 Statelessness Convention has a protection framework that is largely equivalent to that of the Refugee Convention. In those handful of countries where there is some kind of protection regime, like Spain, Hungary, France, Italy, Mexico, I think that's almost it, There is a procedure. You can be recognised as a stateless person, and it's a separate issue from whether you are a refugee. And simply because you're a stateless person, you'll be given a legal status. In some cases, it's even permanent residence automatically, immediately. That means that you can access all sorts of rights in that country, and you can start to clock up those all-important years for naturalisation to acquire a nationality. So the 54 Statelessness Convention does provide some kind of guidance to states in how to deal with this question. It also provides for a travel document for stateless people, which means that they don't necessarily have to use irregular migration channels, put themselves at risk of human smugglers and traffickers in order to cross an international border. They can get the equivalent of a passport and seek entry to another country on that basis. That is a regime put in place within the 1954 convention. And more and more states are recognising that and the need to sign up to this sister instrument that they forgot about in the 50s. Another area of development is in the interpretation of a person's own country under human rights law. Everyone has the right to enter their own country. As a national of Britain... Britain pretty much has to put up with me being here. Whatever trouble I get myself into somewhere else in the world, those countries always know that they can send me back here and I can come and be a burden of this government. That's my privilege on the basis of my nationality. Now for stateless people, in theory there is no country that is obliged to allow them to enter and reside. But under international law, you have the right to enter your own country and we see that this is being developed more expansively than just your country of nationality. If you were to look at the statements of the Human Rights Committee, it would actually set out a number of circumstances in which a country is your own country even if you don't have its nationality. And most of those circumstances actually describe the common situations where we find stateless people. For instance, where you are in a successor state following state succession, so a state that has recently gained independence, and for whatever reason you haven't been recognized as being entitled to nationality in that successor state, so the state succession process has left you stateless. According to the Human Rights Committee, you still have an own country under international law. Which means that that successor state, even if they don't like you, they still have an obligation to readmit you. And so this is some of the uh, ways in which international law is developing to deal with this specific vulnerability of statelessness. And finally, it's worth mentioning, uh, because this is also part of a project that is coming out of the UK at the moment, uh, led by Equal Rights Trust, there is an increased interest in pursuing alternatives to detention, not just for refugees and for migrants generally, but also for stateless people. So the Equal Rights Trust is in the process of developing guidelines for states about the detention of stateless people. When can you detain why can you detain what is and what is not in uh, correspondence with international law in that area. So you also see some thematic developments that are helping to provide a framework for dealing with stateless diasporas. So um, that's the end of my presentation. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Force Migration Online. www.forcemigration.org/podcasts.